Welcome to the latest episode of the Agora, the podcast where we discuss Greece in all its glory and also its shame. I'm Nick Malkoutsis. And this episode will focus on a darker aspect of life in Greece, sports-related violence. I'm Phoebe Fronista. And just a quick disclaimer before we get to uh, the topic for this podcast, obviously there are bigger and um, more worrying things going on in the world at the moment uh, following uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But we did start working on this episode uh, before that happened, so we wanted to finish it. We think still, at least domestically within Greece, it's an important subject and one I think that uh, listeners around the world will uh, be interested to hear about. But uh, rest assured that the Agora will... uh, try to bring its own perspective to the situation in Ukraine in our next podcast. So back to the theme for today's podcast, uh, which is, as Phoebe mentioned, uh, hooliganism, violence around Greek football and other sports. And the starting point for this was, uh, you know, going back a few weeks, early February of this year, when a 19-year-old supporter of Thessaloniki Football Club, Aris, his name was Alkis Gabanos, was stabbed and beaten to death by a group of people that were allegedly fans of a rival club in the northern Greek city, Pauk. Twelve men were detained in connection to the deadly attack, and the government has announced a raft of new measures aimed at stamping out violence linked to sports in Greece, particularly football or soccer as we call it in America. But away from the effort to bring the perpetrators to justice, the incident has sparked a fresh round of introspection about the admittedly miserable state of football in Greece. The game has long been plagued by corruption and violence that half-hearted attempts to address have left most fans disillusioned and disinterested. The current centre-right government has now said it is determined to clean up the game. It's placed a temporary ban on supporters' associations, or clubs, which are often a hive of illegal activity, and has proposed stiffer sentences for those found guilty of violence inside or outside stadiums. The problem, as you know, Phoebe, is that we've heard all this before in Greece, and um, in the wake of previous serious incidents and even deaths, but we always end up back in the same position. There appears to be a lack of professional know-how in preventing violence at the grounds and a lack of will, partly due to the nexus between influential club owners and the political world here, to rein in violent fans outside the grounds. And these are the two issues that we'll be discussing with our guests in this episode. 
Firstly, we're going to be looking at the idea of hooliganism, and to what extent our understanding of this behavior in Greece, and how to address it, is outdated. Nick has spoken to Jeff Pearson, a senior lecturer in criminal law at the University of Manchester. He is an expert in football hooliganism, crowd management, and policing. To address the second aspect of the issue we're tackling in this podcast, in other words, the specific ailments afflicting Greek football or soccer, I spoke to Alexandros Kotis, who is a journalist based in Athens, working for AFP and Courier International, amongst others. Phoebe, he recently wrote an article for the BBC website. You may have seen it. It was titled The Infinite Chaos of Greek Football how the latest hope for change was lost. And I think just the title alone says says a lot, and it's certainly worth uh, reading if you're interested in the subject. It definitely makes for some sober reading. We'll hear from Alexandros shortly, but first let's go to Manchester to hear from Jeff Pearson about how hooliganism has evolved and what are some of the best practices in dealing with football-related violence. So, Jeff, let's start with an easy question. What is hooliganism? And I mean, I ask that because, as far as I understand it, it, it as a term linked to football, it, it perhaps emerged in the 1960s in, in, in Britain, but has since grown to be like a catch-all phrase to describe any sports-related violence across Europe. But it feels that we've kind of moved on from that. I think the term hooliganism and hooligan is used now more in non-English speaking countries than yeah. it is. It's very rarely used now other than talking about a historical phenomenon. And, and ultimately, the first references we see to it are in the 50s. Um, that's when we see the, the first uptick of disorder, particularly relating to visiting fans um, travelling to matches on the, on the rail network. In, in, in England and Wales. Um, but it never had a definition. It never had a legal definition. And it was a it was a catch-all term, which wasn't particularly helpful because originally it was used to describe sort of low-level antisocial behaviour, disorder, vandalism, particularly on football specials and before matches and occasionally spontaneous fighting on terraces. Um, but then the same term was used in the 80s and, and 90s when it was more organised violence in, in England and Wales, um, fights between self-identified firms, um, which obviously had completely, you know, that phenomenon had completely different causes, completely different solutions. So I've always been very critical of the, of the term because it means different things to different people. And if you're trying to identify social policy responses, it's it's no help whatsoever um but increasingly it's just not it's not used by the police in this country it's it's very rare occasionally journalists will refer to it but but it's it's more or less dying out and certainly isn't used in an academic context and so now when we talk about let's stick to football uh, football related violence what are we talking about and also i'm interested to hear your thoughts on how this fits in with the, the culture of ultras which are now it's now sort of widespread across Europe, but for many people, 
it's not associated with with uh, violence at all. But what's the picture that, as you understand it? Well, I think again the problem that we we have in in this country um, in, in in the UK is that we've we've not disentangled the different phenomena, the different types of challenging behaviour, um, and and so we we still have firms that of of lads that want to um they're not necessarily traveling with the intention of fighting but they're putting themselves up there to be challenged and will fight if if provoked um so you still have those groups and they will typically travel for the for the big matches for the rare matches the local derbies or the the rivalry with a team that they've not played for a number of years um and so we will always see that that always comes back but in addition to that the the wider problem or the more challenging behavior is from sort of um groups of young mainly but but also middle-aged predominantly men who want to go and get drunk and have a sing song and maybe take some drugs um and for them it is a day out it's more similar to uh um, a stag do ahead of a wedding than than a sporting event, and the the actual match itself very much takes second fiddle. They may not get in for the kickoff. They may leave early. Uh, they may drop down to the to the concourse into the ground to get a beer at half time and miss half of the match. Um, and along with that sort of transgressive carnivalesque behaviour comes you know, challenges for the authorities yeah. because obviously some of that behaviour is, is is criminal by nature, particularly because football stadiums are so over-regulated. Um, and some of it, of course, will be seen as provocative by um, more violently inclined groups of the rival team support. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult by just looking at a group of lads wearing certain coats, whether they are there to have a fight or whether they're there just to have a drink. Um, how does that fit in with with sort of ultra, ultra cultures? Well, traditionally, English fans have have not been very politically inclined, uh, and also they, they they've tended to shy away from organised expressions of fandom. Um, very much been spontaneous. I think that is starting to change, and I think the 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 ultra culture. Um, in southern and uh, to a less extent eastern Europe is starting to be something that is mirrored in mm-hmm. by some of the younger fan groups in in England and Wales uh, and, and and Scotland as well. Uh, and I think social media plays a massive part there. I think the the aim of the groups in this country, as they are in in Greece and elsewhere, is to be seen as authentic fans. They set themselves up as being authentic, non-corporate, non-commercial. This is how proper fans behave. Um, and, of course, some of those expressions of authentic, inverted commas, fandom are themselves criminal or challenging and, and, and pose you know, a potential challenge for the authorities. And when we're talking about confronting or dealing with uh, football-related violence, are we looking at it as a socio-economic issue or a matter of law and order? I'm not sure how much it is a socio-economic issue. Um, I think what is happening in society more more generally and popular culture more generally 
is really important. We have to understand that. Um, and we have to understand that a lot of these behaviours are are related to what people do on a Friday or Saturday night in the nighttime economy. Um, people that take cocaine at football, for example, are also taking it on, on nights out in town, they're taking on stag do's. Um, football can't be be isolated in that sense. But it's very much a it's very much part of popular culture, part of entertainment. It's yeah. you can't look at football violence and transgressive football behavior in this country without taking into account the humor of it, without taking into account it is it is meant to be funny, it's meant to be a leisure activity. It's all about having fun on the day, creating stories and memories that can be recounted and which might get you through a difficult working week or a tough time you're having at home with your family. It's a, it's a break from that. Um, and, of course, football in this country is, is incredibly expensive. <laughs> you know, if you're travelling away from home on a, on a train, I, I went to, to Norwich with, with, with Manchester United um, just before Christmas. Uh, well, a lot of people are saving up for Christmas presents. It was a, a £90 return train fare because of the way in which the um, the match had been scheduled for TV. We couldn't even get back to Manchester without getting a taxi from Sheffield, which again was another 90 quid on top of it. And um, and then, of course, you've got the, the, the price of the ticket itself, which actually has been capped in this country. It's cheaper now than it was five years ago. But it was still £30. You know, if you're drinking at £5 a pint in the pubs as well, and then if you want a couple of grams of cocaine, you know, it's it's an expensive trip. It's not something you can do if if you've been, you know, if you've lost your job or if you're on a very low-paid job. But, of course, it will always be seen in terms of a, a public order issue as well and in terms of... And one of the problems that we have is that... Football grounds are so heavily regulated and laws have been introduced which are unenforceable. It's a criminal offence to enter a football ground or be in a football ground whilst drunk, for example, in this country. It's a criminal offence to engage in an indecent chant in a football stadium. You know, these these are dominant forms of expression in English football grounds, and yet they are fundamentally unlawful so so the law and order you know can't really be detached from what happens and good policing operations simply can't go down a zero tolerance line because it's just impossible and creates conflict as you know we recently had the murder of a young uh, football supporter in thessaloniki greece second largest city here in um, in greece recently um and Whenever this happens, and unfortunately we do have football-related deaths every few years here, this public debate starts about what to do. Uh, And often commentators, journalists, politicians will turn to England, the UK, and say, look, they had a hooligan problem in the 80s and they dealt with it. And one of the things that gets trotted out is that Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher was tough on it. And and she sorted it out. This is what we need to do. Uh, firstly, are those kind of comments with relation to Thatcher misguided? And secondly, if you had to sort of pinpoint two or three things that were done in the UK to uh, contain at least violence within football grounds, what would they be? Okay, well, I mean, firstly, the... 
what Thatcher did and what the Department of Sport under her did um, did not get rid of hooliganism in, or reduce it in this country. Uh, Thatcher's policies on and Thatcher's laws have caused as much damage to football now mm-hmm. in terms of public order as as they've, they've, they've prevented um, disorder. So we've got, for example, rules on alcohol consumption in football stadiums that were panic laws um, that were introduced without any evidence that they would work, were introduced without the police requesting them. The police thought they'd be a bad idea at the time. And these laws are still in place and, and they still create problems. They create crushes at turnstiles. They create crushes on concourses. They encourage fans to stay outside of football stadiums in this country when the football stadiums are the safest places and most tightly regulated places. Fundamentally bad law. Thatcher also tried to introduce a national ID card scheme. Under Thatcher's watch, 97 now, football fans were killed um, at Hillsborough. Um, So anybody holding Thatcher up to have been... um, the reason why we've got a grip on football disorder in this country doesn't know what they're talking about, doesn't understand politically or legally the mistakes that were made at the time. And, you know, you try trotting that argument out in particularly in, um, in, yeah. in, in Liverpool and, and see the response that you get. I suspect you may see um, football hooliganism close up. <laughs> um, so that's, that's that point. What did happen happened at the tail end of Thatcher's time as Prime Minister. And it happened in a period between 1988 and 1994, give or take. And it was was serendipitous, really. Um, English football and English state got lucky. A number of things were introduced which were positive. So in 1986, for example, football banning orders were introduced. Um, so that if you were convicted of a football-related offence, you could be banned from attending matches. And if you attended matches, that in itself was a criminal offence. That, for convicted fans, has been beneficial. That was that was useful. The other thing that happened under um, Thatcher's watch was the creation of the National Criminal Intelligence Service and the Football Intelligence Unit. Now, in its early days, this was not a particularly good organisation, it, a number of its undercover operations collapsed. Um, it, it was there to gather intelligence on risk football supporters, on the hooligans, um, and, and some of those that ended on that database should not have been on it. There were problems initially. But it was the first time that the police actually looked at football crowds and said, these, are, these people aren't all the same. They're not all here to have a fight. Some are here to have a fight and some of them aren't. And the idea behind the Football Intelligence Unit was to identify and isolate that small group. And that was a massive positive step. A lot of criticism to the Football Intelligence Unit, how it operated at the the time. But it was the first major step in terms of improving policing. So you've got two things happening within a year, 18 months of each other. Banning orders, a legal measure, and then you've got a policing measure. Then, of course, we have the Hillsborough Stadium disaster. And what happens there is that suddenly we have a new safety regime that's introduced. We have an emphasis on crowd safety rather than crowd control. Um, Stadiums 
start to be improved. Some of the old crumbling terraces were replaced by seats. And then the other thing that happens a year after that, or two years after that, is that the Premier League is launched with massive amounts of money from Sky TV. And that means that the clubs have money to make the changes. So you've got four different things that are happening. And none of them are happening because of the other. Um, There's no plan, but all of them mean that the other things work well. So football banning orders only work well if you've got a police service that are there that can identify the people that have been subject to bans. So they don't work until the next thing comes into play. But also, football banning orders don't work unless you've got good CCTV systems that can identify people in stadiums. That doesn't happen until the Taylor report suggests changes, and that doesn't come into play until the clubs have the money to do it. So all these four things come together, and it's within six or so years that this suddenly has a massive impact upon the levels of violence and disorder in and immediately around football stadiums. It doesn't get rid of the problem altogether, okay? but it breaks the back of it. But it, it's an incredibly compa- complex series of events that occur. So carrying on that theme, and just a sort of final question, uh, Jeff. Obviously, given what's happened in Greece and other uh, f- football-related deaths, uh, there is both pressure on the government to act, but the government itself, as governments in all these situations, wants to be seen to be doing something about football-related violence. Uh, Given your experience, what you described in the UK, but also, you know, what you've picked up from uh, what's been happening in Europe in terms of best practices for preventing violence inside or outside football grounds, what kind of advice would you give? Just one or two things that you think are definitely worth looking at. I think you need to have a legal measure in place, which means that if you've got somebody that's been proven to have committed a criminal violent offence in football, that they are isolated and taken away, not only from the stadium itself, but also from the environments where disorder takes place on a match day. That's what football banning orders on conviction in this country do. Um, You know, you have an exclusion order, you're not allowed to go in the pubs around the ground, you're not allowed to go by the main train station. Um, And I think those are justifiable where you have a conviction. I think there are problems when you use them as preempt preventative measures and civil measures but on conviction I think those are perfectly sensible as basically as part of a sentence Um, so I think that's important but I think the most important thing is policing Mm -hmm. Um, and all the evidence suggests that where you've got entrenched problems of crowd disorder you have to police effectively you have to police proactively and the most important feature of policing is dialogue it is understanding the crowds that you're dealing with. It is speaking to the crowds that you're dealing with. It is finding out what their intentions are and whether their intentions are legitimate, it is to try and facilitate them. And you can do that in a human rights compliant manner under the European Convention. You know, every football fan has a right to peaceful assembly. Every football fan has a right to um, non-violent expression. Okay, Make that the starting point. These people have got these rights. How can we facilitate this? And then once you start to build those relationships, you get into a situation where the police are no longer seen as the enemy. The police can go into crowds without riot gear. That means that they can get a 
proper feel for the actual levels of risk that are posed. They can feed back that information to their superiors. They can say, well, look, get those riot cops off that street. They're not needed. This, this crowd are just here to have a sing-song and, and, and they're not interested. But equally, if you get situations where you get a feeling that there are people there for a fight, you can feed that back. You can say, actually, this crowd isn't usual. Something is going on here. We need to police in a, in a more robust manner. You can't make those calls unless you've got good intelligence. You can't get that intelligence unless you're in those crowds. You've got to get to a position where you can walk into those crowds. And the best way of doing that is early in the morning, the first people that get that you see at the, at the bars or at the cafes or in the town squares, you go up to and you say, hello, well, yeah. welcome to Thessaloniki, welcome to Athens. Um, and you start to build, and it won't happen overnight, particularly where the, you know, there are entrenched conflicts between fan groups and police. Of it won't happen overnight. Maybe that actually you need completely new people in there to try and make those connections. Um, and, and it may be that you need to use, for example, liaison officers who say, I'm not going to be feeding back individual intelligence on people. I'm not going to be arresting you if I see you commit a crime. I'm just here to try and stop major disorder occurring. Um, so the, there are many ways in which policing can, can make differences. And we've seen this form of dialogue policing really effectively be used. Um, and the, the great example was at the European Championships in, um, in Portugal in mm-hmm. 2004, um, which, of course, every, every, every Greek person with their salt uh, has very fond memories of. of course, yeah. That was meant to be a bloodbath in terms of English fans causing disorder. Um, they were expected a quarter of a million English tourists in Portugal for the duration of that tournament. Um, and the police forces managing the big venues just changed the way in which they police. They moved from a riot police show of force um, style of policing to a dialogue-based policing. And there wasn't a single arrest of an English supporter for a violent or disorderly offence in any of the major cities Incredible. where the matches were taking place. In contrast, in, um, in Albufeira, down in, in the Algarve, where the original gendarmerie would, hadn't changed a thing, there were two days of right. Yeah, The evidence is overwhelming that yeah. this style of policing works. Well, Jeff, it's, it's been fascinating hearing these points. I'm not sure how many of these changes we'll see in Greece soon or, or ever, but I think you, you make some really salient points and uh, it's been a really interesting discussion. Thank you very much. Okay, it's been a pleasure. That was Jeff Pearson from the University of Manchester speaking to Nick about what can be done to minimize violence at football matches. Now, let's look at the Greek context because there are certain particularities involved that do not apply to the UK and many other countries. And if we're serious about addressing the problem here, they really need to be taken into account. As we mentioned earlier, Nick has been speaking to Alexander Skotis, an Athens-based French freelance journalist who has a passion for football, and he laid bare the ugly side of the game in Greece in a recent article for the BBC News website, 
you can find the link to the piece in our show notes. Here are Nick and Alexandros lamenting the state of Greek football. So, uh, Alexandros, uh, we were discussing a little off air that uh, in Greece you support uh, Panionios, a, a team uh, based in Athens, but you also support Paris Saint-Germain in, in France, where you were born. And obviously you, you are a big uh, football fan, and I imagine that you've been to see uh, football matches in many countries Could you give me an idea of what it is about following football or going to the stadium in Greece uh, that is provides a sort of positive experience and perhaps some of the things when you compare it to what you've experienced in other countries that come out as a negative as well? Sure. Uh, well, yeah, I, I have to say that I, I'm a huge football fan. Uh, I used to play since I'm a kid. Uh, I wrote my thesis at the university on, on football and politics. So it's, uh, <laughs> football is, is part of my life. And now I, I write, I write on, on football. So yeah, I, I really enjoy going to the stadiums and, and, uh, um, while well, the, the last two years were more complicated, um, because of COVID, of course. Yeah, um, of course. but, uh, Yeah, I don't know. Let's say that in, in Greece for many years, I used to think that uh, it was incredible to go to the stadium, thanks to the atmosphere, because uh, fans are, are really into it. And so you can uh, enjoy powerful atmospheres inside the stadium, mm -hmm. something that you see less and less in, in I think, in, in Europe. Like in France, it's, it, it's generally more uh, quiet. So mm -hmm. that was what I used to think uh, when yeah. I was, let's say, a teenager, because I think it was the reality. But uh, the last years are uh, more disappointing, I would say, because uh, less people go, less people go to the to the stadium. Um, their their interest is uh, uh, weak now because uh, because of the, the let's say the the quality of the game. But also because of of the violence, we will we will discuss it, and mm -hmm. so I think uh, sure you can see sometimes very powerful atmosphere. We, we uh, no doubt about that. Uh, but in very specific games, and uh, more often you see like uh, stadiums uh, half empty with uh, with nothing happening actually, and uh, very. <laughs> Poor quality football, so yeah, I still go, and uh, well, because I I like to go to see to to feel the atmosphere. But uh, I just give you an example. Uh, I was in Venezia last week, uh, mm -hmm. last weekend, and I went to the stadium to see Venezia Genoa, like a, a derby, and and both teams are, are very close to the relegation. So yep. it was intense. The, the The game was not good, uh, but I was uh, with the Genoa fans, so the away fans, and for 94 minutes they were uh, uh, putting an incredible atmosphere for mm -hmm. 94 minutes. And even if the, the club didn't make it, they they, they just draw one one at the end, uh, like they were supporting, and and it was 
like beautiful, really beautiful. No violence, uh, just like uh, uh, songs and and tifo, and uh, it was very very good. Yeah, I, I I understand absolutely what you mean. Having having been in the Olympic Stadium in Athens to watch a football game, and this is a stadium that holds. 60 to 70,000 people and there may have been two, 3,000 people there and it was really a soul-destroying experience. It's sad. It's sad, actually. Almost yeah. depressing. Like, uh, even if it's for, for the, the clubs, even for the, uh, the national team, like, uh, like, yeah, you go to the stadium and you're like, okay, what am I doing here? Like, uh, <laughs> you're, you're watching a poor game uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very disappointing, I think. This, this is it. And of course, one of the the problems uh, is that I think that it turns off new young supporters. You know, th there was a time when uh, kids growing up, uh, uh, you know, the, the, their main interest would be their team in Greece, and perhaps they would have a team that they follow uh, abroad. Invariably, it would be a successful team like uh, Bayern Munich or uh, Real Madrid or Liverpool or Manchester United or, or whoever. But, you know, their first interest would be in their Greek team. And I see that this, uh, you know, from from my own uh, son and his, his friends, that this has flipped around completely, that there is very little interest in what's happening in the Greek game for the, the reasons, some of which you described and some of which we'll come to. And the main interest is in what's going on in other countries. And, of course, this stops the lifeblood of uh, the game, future supporters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think, like, uh, now the kids... I think, like, less people uh, are interested in football in general. Like, the young generations are more into other things now. Um, but, yeah, in Greece, there is also this thing that, that they will be uh, more interested in... in like the the Premier League or uh, the Calcio or, or the Liga, maybe now also I think the the French uh, league also, and uh, they yeah they don't follow that much uh, the Greek teams, and I can understand it to be honest, even if there is maybe some sometimes um, it's an emotional uh, link to the teams thanks to the family thanks to uh, uh, the the place they live, but yeah. Okay, let, let's move to the uh, recent tragic uh, developments, which also tell us about why there is this diminished uh, interest, for, uh, particularly from younger fans, but also among older fans. Uh, the government has announced plans to tighten up the law on sports-related violence, including tougher sentences in reaction to the deadly incident in uh, Thessaloniki, which has sparked this podcast. How do you evaluate these measures? And do you think that they address the source of uh, violence that's linked to football in Greece? Um, look, to, to be honest, yeah, I think for now it's, it's very hard to evaluate the effectiveness of, of the measures, uh, especially in a country where the justice system is very weak. Um, we can say that, that for sure it's a quick and, and strong reaction from the government. And I know from uh, some, some sources inside the world of hooligans that they have been uh, shaken by the police raids into the fan clubs. But uh, 
That being said, I think it's important to recall that connections between football clubs, hooligans and police members have been proved uh, during the last years. And I think it won't be easy to clean the field. Yeah, that's that's a good uh, point. Obviously, that uh, if if you're not addressing that the, the, this crossover we mentioned in the introduction to the podcast, the, the the nexus between some influential club owners and the political world, but as you're mentioning there, obviously between the police and some. Uh, uh, hooligan elements. If those are not addressed, then the other measures end up being a little bit uh, like decoration, if you like. Sure, and also I think it's we can add also that uh, if you if we look closer, uh, it's it's very often that we see uh, some hooligans or very hardcore fans of uh, some clubs uh, being then employed by the clubs. Um, some groups of supporters are, are paid by the clubs. Um, so I think the links uh, between the clubs, the hooligans, are very, uh, make, make everything more complicated. The government also announced the temporary closure of supporters' clubs or supporters' associations. This came after dozens of raids on uh, these clubs. Why are they being targeted? What role do they play in Greek football? So the fan clubs were targeted because they are like homes for the supporters. Um, it's where they meet before and after the games, uh, but also anytime they want during the week. Um, the fan clubs at, are where they socialize, where they organize themselves for various actions in, inside or outside the stadium. So closing them, according to the government, um, is a way to prevent fans from planning violent actions. Um, I think it's it's important to say that a lot of supporters who join groups are often uh, very young at a time in their lives when uh, they need to forge kind of uh, identity. So becoming a supporter means belonging to a group, having a social life, pursuing goals. It's a way to become someone through them membership. Um, I think it's it's very easy to understand that the vast majority of the fan clubs are kind of male zone where toxic masculinity and culture of violence is the norm. Um, and and as the defense of uh, their club becomes central, they can easily be manipulated as long as the owner brings good results to the club, the supporter can do almost anything for him. And so here is a motivation for businessmen and oligarchs to own uh, football clubs because uh, they can use the fan base of the club to protect their persons and also their own interests. Um, so more popular the club, the more powerful the owner. Okay. You, you kind of hinted at it there, but in your view, Alex, as someone who has uh, followed Greek football, has written about it, done, done work on it. Wh where do the key problems uh, with the game in Greece lie? Is it to do with a lack of money, poor facilities, corruption? What do you think is really wrong? 
well, I, I think the problem of Greek football is a combination of several factors that feed each other. Uh, between the clubs, there is a fierce competition to participate in the Champions League, where the money is, and the stakes are too high to be decided just by the players' feet. So you can imagine the pressure on the referees in the, in the Greek League. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the economic issues are so important that some clubs try to really control the decision. And this goes through the football fans who can act as a armed wing of the club, I would say. Um, but, right. but corruption and violence uh, repel a large majority of football fans. And I think it's important to say that year after year, stadium attendance decreases. The level, the level of, of, the, of the game on the field is very poor, the atmosphere detestable, and soon only the more radical people re- will remain in the stadiums. Um, I think it's, it's also important to say that football is not outside Greek society, and so it is affected by the overall situation the country faces, economic crisis, poverty, youth unemployment, violence. Yeah. Alex, just to go briefly back to happier times, um, in 2004, Greece's national team shocked the world Mm -hmm. to win the European Championship. We all all remember. How how could we forget? Of course, there were problems then with the domestic game. But 18 years on, the quality of football is lower. As you highlighted, clubs find it difficult to attract or keep good players. Many teams are facing big financial problems. Stadiums are falling apart. And fans are not going to games, as you've highlighted in in your comments. On top of that, we have an ongoing problem with violence, which, as you mentioned, is going to be difficult to address unless there is real will, particularly on the part of the authorities. So my question is, is there any way out of this seemingly downward spiral? Um, Well, personally, I'm not very optimistic about uh, the near future. I I do hope uh, things can change, but uh, yeah, I'm not very optimistic. The, the work to clean the field is, is enormous and uh, I'm not sure there is enough will because to, to achieve something, a collaboration between football clubs, the Hellenic Federation and the government is needed to start again from zero. But the thing is that people inside these bodies have no interest in seeing things change. So I don't, for now, I don't know what, what will be the, the solution, to be honest. Alex, I don't think that we've cheered many people up, but I think we've given them a, a realistic, honest assessment of the state of football in Greece, and clearly there is much work to be done. Thanks for joining us on the Agora. Thank you very much. That was journalist Alexandros Kotis speaking to Nick. He didn't sound very optimistic about tackling violence or improving the fan experience in general. No, but I think he has every right to be sceptical. 
uh, as he suggested, there are certain taboo issues that have to do with football in Greece. And if the authorities don't have the interest or will to address them, then every so often we will be back discussing the same issues again and again. As we have been over the last few decades, you know, I can remember over the last 20 years, at least three or four times when there's been a major public debate about cleaning up the game. But inevitably, we soon end up back at square one. And, you know, Phoebe, it's a real shame because there are people who care about the sport. I've seen it with my own eyes at grassroots level. And fans of all ages are being denied all the positive social experiences that come with supporting their team in a safe, welcoming environment. On that theme, Alexandros has launched a photo project called Supporters, which aims to get football fans to share their experiences of following their team and giving them control over what people see as a way of challenging perceptions and showing the reality of being a supporter. There will be a link to the project in our show notes. And that's it for another episode of the Agora. Don't forget you can find us on Acast, Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. Follow us, rate us, and send us your comments. We love hearing from you. Until next time, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.